I want to be good stewards with, with what I'm given. If I'm going to build a house, I want to make sure that I'm being a good steward of that resource. I just have a passion for excellence. If I built that house right, I'm not going to get in trouble with my owners uh, or the city. So part of it's just my core motivation of, of staying out of, out of trouble by doing the right thing. Uh, and to me, doing the right thing is building the home a certain way and making sure that it's, it's uh, well built and not going to rot in 10 years or make my clients unhealthy. You know, that, that indoor air quality, it's something you don't see and sometimes you don't notice, um, but it can, it can have serious health effects with asthma and, and mold and um, certain you know, chemicals we're putting in our houses and things like that. Welcome to episode 145 of the AT Construction Podcast. And today we have Luke Mesger with Mesger Homes on Instagram, at Mesger Homes. And Luke is the jefe. I am super impressed with Luke. I've known him for quite a while. I was actually introduced to him through Matt Reisinger. Uh, him and Matt are good friends. He builds in Austin as well. And Luke is really analytical with his own systems as a company, accounting. He does fixed price, how he manages his project managers. And we really dive into depth about not only how he built his own accounting software, he doesn't use QuickBooks or any other foundation software. He has his own and how he built that and why, and then how important systems are in his process. Just an amazing conversation. Uh, Luke also flips the script a little bit, asked me some questions, and we really dive into just the business operations. You'll love it. Without further ado, let's get started. This past May, we had an amazing Contractor Coalition Summit. This was in Nashville with Nick Schiffer from Menace Builders and Morgan Molitor from Construction to Style out of Minnesota. And we are now up for our second round of the Contractor Coalition Summit that'll be in Huntington Beach from Sunday, November 6th through Wednesday, November 9th. Go to ContractorCoalitionSummit.com, sign up, register. We have some amazing partners that'll be there sponsoring the event amazing attendees that have already signed up. It's limited seating. We're only allowing 30 to attend. And again, this will be all things pricing, profitability, contracting, client expectations, scheduling, and of course, marketing and social media. Everything that we wish we knew in our business from the very beginning is all going to be wrapped up into just a couple of days. So we'll see you there in Huntington Beach in November. So welcome to the AT Construction Podcast. I'm Brad Levitt. And today we have Luke Mesger on with us. Welcome, Luke. Hey, thanks, Brad, for having me. I'm uh, excited to spend some time talking with you. Yeah, it's been long overdue. We met at the Builder Show. This was what, I don't know, four or five years ago. It was in Vegas right before COVID, right? Yeah, it was it was uh, twenty nineteen. So it was we were also at the twenty twenty, right when it was cranking up, but it didn't it didn't you're right. that one. So we met in I guess that was February twenty nineteen. Yeah, it's been a while now and I've been a big fan. Just we met there at the I think Sugutsami Sugut how do you say it? I'm trying to remember the hardware company drama. Yeah, Sugutsuni, <laughs> there you go. It's a tricky one, but they have some amazing hardware. I know you actually went there recently. Didn't you go with Matt out to Switzerland to see their operation? So we went to uh, the Siga, Siga uh, uh, tape out in Switzerland. Um, the Suga Suga okay. is in Japan. Um, okay. But yeah, I, uh, I think I, I, I only got on Instagram, I think in 2017. And then I think I might have been following Paul, your project manager, before he moved over. Um, I could have gotten those dates wrong. But anyway, so I, and then I started following you. And then, uh, yeah, I was walking around and I, I looked up and I saw you and Paul together and I was like, oh, I, I know those guys and uh, <laughs> walked up to you and introduced myself and to you and uh, to Paul. And um, right after that, I DM'd you and uh, we've been we've been IG buddies ever since. Yes, we have. And in fact, that takes another turn now because it was interesting. Matt Reisinger came out and we did some videos with Matt on the Net Zero house for Mark Law Liberté. 
And while we're in the truck driving, we're just speaking about, cause I'm like, Hey, I know you're close with Luke. And he's like, yeah, in fact, you know, our, our wives are friends, you know, our kids and we live close to each other. And, you know, he said nothing but amazing things about your business, which I've seen from afar and, you know, meeting in person at the build show. Um, of, of course, being that you're in Austin, I'm in Scott, so we don't get a ton of time together, but, uh, he made a comment. He said, you know, Brad, Luke actually is super interesting. He has his own accounting software. Like he's built his own system <laughs> that he does himself. And I'm like, hold on, I need to ask Luke about this. Cause he's like, you need to ask him about this. Cause it's super impressive what he's done. So when I was thinking about starting my own company, I started thinking about, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to run it? And I started looking into QuickBooks and there was like a monthly subscription fee. And I was like super adverse to having any extra overhead starting out. And I was like, I think I can do this. I think I can make my own software, accounting software out of access. And for those that don't know what that is, it's a, it's a database uh, programming software from Office. Like, so, so if you buy the full-blown Microsoft Office package, you'll get access with it. And most people don't know what it is, but it's a database program. And through other companies I'd worked for, I kind of understood how databases work and how they, uh, how you have to set them up to get the outputs that you want. Um, it's all about making sure you know, designing the inputs in your tables so that you can extract whatever data you want to in a useful manner uh, on the other side of it. So I started monkeying with one and uh, before, before long, a couple months into it, running some trials, I had pretty much, yeah, invented my own accounting software. So I, uh, I, I, I didn't want to pay QuickBooks uh, their, their monthly fee, so I came up with it on my own. <laughs> so hold on. I, you know, it's interesting about that. I was just going to ask, you know, between, you know, QuickBooks, you know, as opposed to access, I mean, there's still time vested, right? I mean, just d did you do access in college? I mean, how did you have just at least enough expertise to build those ta tables, the back end support, you know, to run that system? Yeah, uh, I got a little bit exposure to it in college. Uh, and then and then the first company I worked for, which was Mercedes Homes uh, out of Florida. Um, I saw so I was in Austin, but they had their main home division was in Florida. Um, so what's funny about that, if I interrupt you, yeah, so Mercedes, uh, when I was actually finishing uh, construction management in college, I went on the recruiting trip to Florida. And I think uh, I'm pretty sure they gave me an offer for like the Treasure Coast, I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I almost took that offer to Mercedes, but I ended up taking an offer in Arizona. So yeah, that's super cool. it's probably the right move for me. It ended up working out, but a uh, small world. Yeah, small world, small world. So they had a huge, you know, they their own dome proprietary uh, database system. I think it was called Starlink or something with Star in it, but um, got to understand how you set it up. And so I eventually, I started out as a builder with them. And then eventually I was uh, in charge of purchasing for the entire Austin division. And we had it dialed in to where we could say, hey, we're going to build this 2737 plan. Uh, I think we named them after their square footage, their, their B elevation. We're going to build it in this subdivision um, with these options tacked onto it. And so once you select all those checkboxes in the database, it can then spit out purchase orders for you. So it knew, it knew the vendors that were marked for that neighborhood. It knew all the interrelations between the base price and all the option prices, and it, it tabulated all that together and spit out, you know, a piece of paper per vendor that had all the options on it and, and agreed upon price. So I was like, wow, this is a really powerful, powerful tool. I really got my mind and you know, grasped how databases work. And so I just started applying that to, okay, what do I need? Like when a, when a vendor turns in the invoice, well, I need to have the vendor information in there. So I have a table with their, their name, their company name, their address, 
um, their EIN or their social security number, if they're tax exempt, um, when their general liability expires. Um, and then when you in input the invoice, you know, you've got to put in the, uh, the job site address. So that's another table. And then eventually, you know, you have your estimates in there. And so you can say, you know, line item one on their invoice is for this cost code. It's for this amount. And I've even set up, um, set up formulas to where, where when we're inputting invoices and once you type in the address and the cost code, you didn't get to see what's been spent on that cost code and what's left in the budget to spend on that cost code. So whenever we're going through, we know immediately. So let's say the, the plumber's putting in his final invoice and it's for $20,000 for the, the trim out draw. And we're like, oh, there's only $18,000 left in this budget for that. Immediately a red flag gets raised. And so my, you know, uh, accounting person can be like, why are we over? Did we did we do an unauthorized change order? Um, did they have to do something on site that we should actually code to punch instead of coding to the plumbing cost code? And so it just gives me gives me the the power to to figure out budgeting issues before they're much of an issue. Now, now what's interesting about that? I mean, not that there's risk because you understand access, you know, and you've built this incredible database and you have the cross checking right to make sure you're not double paying or that you know red flags are brought up right if there's an issue with invoicing. But, you know, as you've grown as a company, do you feel it's been still working efficiently for you? Do you feel there's any setbacks or, you know, have you thought about changing maybe the software internally for accounting? Um, I've modified it a little bit, added a few extra reports along the way. Um, I love it. I don't think I'll ever switch. Like I can, if I want to know, I mean, I can, I can parse out any information. I, I can do cash flow analysis and, and maybe QuickBooks does this too, but where I can I can make charts based off the cost of a job on a you know bi-monthly basis versus you know the cash flow in the draw schedule and I can see if hey did, did this project did I stay ahead of cost the whole time on this project or am I running behind um, you know all my IRS uh, forms uh, and reports I've made and so it's just, I, I just every month I click a button I figure out how much I owe the tax man. Um, like said, You're killing me. Like it, this is amazing to me because I'm sitting here thinking like the complexity. Like anyone that's a builder, we know the complexity of day to day, just building, construction, trades. You know, per, purchase orders, change orders, everything we're dealing with as a as a builder. You know, working with subs, and here you are building your own accounting software and your own database. <laughs> and then what, what's really tricky, and and all the time I've spent with contractors, and even starting my business, where where a lot of contractors really get, uh, I don't, don't want to say in trouble, but where they really miss the mark is they may be good contractors, but they're not good businessmen. And by, yeah, by that, it really comes down to the financials, right? A huge thing is cash flow, which is a big problem that um, depending on if you're like lump sum or cost plus, you know, how you're billing, taking deposits, how you're tracking that and accounting for it. But more importantly, especially accounting is a little bit tricky in construction because as you mentioned a little bit earlier, you have job costing, you have WIP, you know, your work in progress. And if you're not running these numbers accurately on what your projected profit will be on the job, you know, because none of our jobs finish, you know, January to December, it doesn't work that way. You're cross over year to year. And so paying taxes, making sure you're not overpaying or underpaying, you know, that whip becomes a super important number. And so essentially you've alluded to this, Luke. I mean, have you captured just a, through the database, like you fully understand that job cost and whip, and it's just been uh, very successful for you. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And so at the end of the year it, with my accountant, I run like four reports and talking about the percentage, well, I do percentage complete uh, for the, the right. tax man. 
for the whip. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and so, yeah, it's, I've just have made all these custom reports and queries in my database and it's super simple. Yeah. I can tell you down to the penny where we're at every, every two weeks. It's incredible. I mean, I'm fascinated. And here's why. So, so my only experience with Microsoft Access, I didn't do anything with it in college, but I worked, you know, as I mentioned, I didn't go to Mercedes Homes. There's a, a production builder, which was a great experience for me, you know, out of college. So the, for the first year out of college, I worked for a company called Trend Homes. And then I went to a company, Roland, Home, Roland Luxury Homes, before starting AFT. And um, so I had that six years of experience out of college, but both companies used Microsoft Access. Really, as you mentioned, I mean, you were in purchasing with Mercedes, but for the field, the punch list. So we could put in the database, all the subcontractors, all the jobs, lot numbers, you know, projects. And so as I do my punch list as a superintendent, you know, I can go into Microsoft Access, you know, their database pull down menus so I could pick the trade, do the punch list, input, input the item. And it was great because a lot of our trades, at least in the production world, would print off, you know, 5 a.m. that morning, their punch list. And so I could essentially do my punch list at 10 p.m. the night before. It's uploaded in Access, spits it out, purchase order. They print it off in the morning and then they're already taking care of the punch list. Um, it may be more difficult today in yeah. our building market, but you know, back then when I was out of college, it actually worked yeah. pretty efficiently. So, are you, are you using access outside of accounting or just for accounting? No, no, just for accounting. And, and don't you wish we got the same service uh, in, our, <laughs> yeah. in our custom world as we used to get in the production world with warranty and punch list? Oh my goodness, it's so difficult. Yeah. But um, but but not only, and this is why I want to bring you on, Luke, because and and we'll get into some of the building science and some amazing things you're doing down in Austin, uh, in your area that's tremendously growing. But um, Dwell Magazine, talk to me about Dwell Magazine, because that was, you know, that, that, that's a huge deal for you. So Yeah, no, that, uh, that was a fantastic project. It was our uh, St. John's project. And um, yeah, it was actually an architect from Houston who was really good friends with the owners. I think they went to college together and they were like, hey, one day we're going to build a house and one day you're going to design it for us and it's going to be awesome. And sure enough, you know, 15, 20 years later, it, it came to fruition. And uh have, so I remember a commercial, I think it was back in the 80s or 90s, where um, it was like an architect and a client, you know, set up and the client walks into the office and they're holding like a plumbing fixture. And they're like, I want you to design the house around this. And they, they throw down a plumbing fixture. And it was like a commercial for like Kohler or uh, something like that. Um, so if you don't remember that, don't worry about it. But it was essentially the same thing, but it was with the brick. So this, they, they love this brick. And so they wanted to make sure every single turn or termination in this brick course was equal with the brick size. So either half brick or full brick. So all windows, all doors, um, all exterior corners, interior corners, all were that same dimension. Uh, so that, yeah, it was perfect. So every window had half or full course brick on it. Um, but no, it ended up amazing. Um, and then, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful house, beautiful family. So, beautiful so uh, of course, you pass math class. I mean, you and, and your architect were right, to do right? that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. houses get built as easy as they get built in SketchUp, right? I mean, you just right. jot on paper and boom, it's magic. And if you know the measurement of the product you're using, I mean, you just forecast that and then you, you, you plan for it, right? Uh, how, did, how did that come in with Dwell? Because that's a pretty big deal. I mean, what was the connection? Was that something you pushed, the architect pushed? You know, speak to that relationship because... The reason I ask a lot of us builders, and one of the questions I often get from young builders or even designers and architects is like, how do you get to that level where you have something published in a in national magazine? Like, how do you build those relationships? You know, how does that come to fruition? Is there an application? Is it just networking? You know, where does that come from? Um, that's a great question. I think you got me stumped. I might have, I mean, it, 
we were super proud of it. And so the architect and I had a professional photographer come in and we photographed it. Um, and I believe he reached out to dwell, um, at, because we couldn't post anything about this house before they had first stab at it. Um, I think that's part of their agreement. Um, which a lot of magazines are that way. If I interrupt you, I mean, they'll come in and if they know that you're in line to be published, they're going to limit any, you know, website publishings on your website, any social media, you know, because they want to be first to release. And then, you know, maybe they have 30, 60 days after publication that you can then put live on the website. Yeah. I've got, I've got two more homes that I've recently built that turned out fantastic that I can't publish yet because it's the same reason. I'm like, <laughs> I, I just wish they, yeah, I need that content, mind, make up their mind one way or the other. Uh, so I can, I can get some traction out of these awesome pictures I took. So were there any requirements? And the reason I asked about Dwell, I, you know, I, truth be told, I haven't been published by Dwell, you know, Lux magazines wanted with Lux. Um, they, they have a requirement that of course you have to have an architect, you have to have an interior designer house has to be furnished and there has to be a client. It can't be like a spec home because mm-hmm. they really want the whole story of, you know, the whole team, right? Builder, designer, architect, client, right? That whole transition. And so that's kind of their MO. So I know for anyone listening, I mean, as you're thinking about marketing, just as you have networking events with these, some of these companies, like, and again, social media, it's funny, Luke, you bring up the example of your architect that he knew these owners from college. And it's funny, you think about these relationships and this is where a lot of us have to look not to the next six months, but maybe 10 years from now as we're building our business. And, you know, I, I find that a lot of clients I'm working for now, I mean, these are friends that I've had for 20 years, you know, college, basketball, you know, just different, you know, environments, you know, neighbors that I've met with, you know, LinkedIn connections. And then over time, you know, you build that rapport and camaraderie and, you know, they're like, Hey Luke, I'm, you're going to build my house and maybe 10 years from now, but they're at a point in their career where they have the means to do it. And, you know, so you always have to be laying those seeds and plan those down because you never know which one will, uh, which one will grow. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, outside of, um, dwell magazine, I know you're super involved in building science. Um, and, and you do a lot of really instructive videos. I mean, for anyone that uh, you, you'll put your social media handles to follow, what, where does that passion come from, uh, you know, getting into the building science and the envelope? Yeah. Um, I think I read a book. Um, it was The Power of Why. Um, and I kind of took a deep dive into like, why why do I focus on these things? Why do I like building? Why why am I way, the way I am? And it boiled down to like, I love efficiency. So when it comes to like the systems I have set up in my company, like I love efficiency. So of course I'm going to have processes and systems everywhere I look. Um, Whenever I think about, you know, the energy use of my homes, like I don't want to waste energy. And so I want to be extremely efficient with the houses I build. Um, Yeah. And and why though? I mean, if I interrupt you, I mean, what you mentioned the power of why, but as a builder, it's really easy or designer architect to say, Hey, I need a project. I have a client. They may not be passionate about that. So it's easy for me just to like build their house and it may not have anything I would like or like to do for my brand. But you know, I have the project I'm building it, you know, essentially moving forward. Yeah. I want to be good stewards with, with what I'm given. If I'm going to build a house, I want to make sure that I'm being a good steward of that resource. I just have a passion for excellence. If I built that house, right, I'm not going to get in trouble with my owners. Uh, or the city. So part of it's just my core motivation of, of staying out of, out of trouble by doing the right thing. Uh, and to me, doing the right thing is building the home a certain way and making sure that it's it's uh, well-built and not going to rot in 10 years. 
or make my clients unhealthy. You know, that, that indoor air quality, it's something you don't see and sometimes you don't notice, um, but it can, it can have serious health effects with asthma and, and mold and um, certain, you know, chemicals we're putting in our houses and things like that. So do you ever have any pushback? And the reason I ask, because right now in this market, you know, pricing's escalating, materials more expensive, and all clients have a budget, no matter what it is. And, and, and it may even be that may, they may have the financial capability to spend more, but they look at this realistically and say, hey, in my neighborhood, it's not going to appraise, you know, I can only build to X square foot. How do you bridge that gap where you're trying to say, okay, and it's not even, hey, I'm the cheap guy, but it's more, hey, there's, there's some minimums or there's some, uh, some building science standards that I want to implement in your house. How do you marry that with the budget, which is always a yeah. tricky it, conversation. it starts up front with me. So I kind of have a baseline of specifications that I'm going to build to. I mean, one of those is the zip system sheathing. Um, like I'm always going to put zip systems sheathing on my house, no matter what. And I'm always going to tape the sheathing to my foundation, uh, using Sega Fentrum tape. Uh, and I'm always going to put in a variable speed blower on my AC systems with at least a two stage condenser. And I'm always going to use a dedicated dehumidifier and I'm always going to do a semi-conditioned sealed attic. Um, and so I, I could go on down the list, but those are kind of things that are, those items are, are a, you know, a necessity with me. And so wh whenever I do rough pricing with clients, those features are already baked into the rough numbers from the get-go. So now how often are you involved in the design process though? Do you ever have clients coming in where they've already met with the architect and the house is done or are you involved at the beginning? Yeah. 80% 80, 80 of the time I get hired on under a professional services agreement after the, the, the DD, the design drawings, um, you know, the, the concept drawings when they only have, you know, rough floor plans and maybe four elevations drawn um, so that I can start steering the ship with design concerns. And so if they start always, you know, they talk about, you know, feature creep. Uh, if the clients keep taking a left-hand turn and never take a right-hand turn, they're going to end up way off the rough budget. So, you know, I love getting in early on the stage um, and, and helping be that voice of reason uh, whenever they like, maybe we shouldn't cover that whole wall with tile. That's a hundred dollars a square foot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe we shouldn't have all this glass here, you know? Um, so yeah. But it, and then the other 20%, um, they come to me with finished plans and it, it eventually it works out. That's why it's 20% of my business. But, um, yeah. So architects, are they pretty open to working with you? I, I'll say, you know, before you answer that, I mean, I look at, our market here in Phoenix is very similar. Most of our clients come to us first, or at least we're and we're involved in the very beginning, right? So we we can work through this, and this is where it's very collaborative because uh, you know architects, depending on how big of the firm and the draftsman they're working, you know there's some firms we work with that have 25 employees, right, and some that maybe have two, and so they may have their own standard of like a masonry stem wall or a poured in place concrete stem wall or you know insulating the foundation or you know as we're talking about sips, you know trusses. And so the good ones will ask and say, Brad, are you typically using like tankless water heaters? You know, and then, so they have these questions on how we do our stem walls, you know, things that we're particular about, uh, as you mentioned this list and that way they can incorporate it. So having that communication now really helps in design function as well as budget. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, one of the first meetings with the owners and architects, as we decide to continue on with the plans, I've got a 10 page specification template and we'll at a real high level view talk about, Hey, 
what do you want to go to zip r because if so let's try to integrate that into the design and push out the slab a little bit so that it's flush with the slab um all kinds of things yeah so from a very high level early on we're, we're having those those discussions and maybe the architects have always done it one way it, i've always they've always been open like how do you do it and why and they're like okay that's fine with me i i love that you said that because i actually had a note here i was going to ask you you know from when you talk about your minimums, is this something that's documented? Because earlier you mentioned procedures, which we'll get into, but you know, systems-wise, how have you refined that document just to come and prepare to sit down with the architect and client? And it sounds like you do have a 10-page, you have a working doc to always reference on. Correct, yeah. So that, it's the beginning of our specifications. Um, and so, I mean, it's fun. It's like every every time I've got, uh, you know, in a, not an argument, but anytime I've, I've lost money on something, I'd be like, why did I lose money on this? It's like, well, maybe I didn't set expectations properly. Okay, well, can I set expectations properly next time with it being listed in the specifications? Like, yes, okay, let's let's change this. Um, so I've kind of narrowed it down to the things that I think are important. And that, and because you could, if you go down and start writing every single specification for like the quality of the pecs and the, chemical composition of the paint. And I mean, it would, it would be a hundred <laughs> pages long and no one would ever read it. So right. I've kind of gone through every cost code. I, instead of organizing it by division, like the AIA divisions. Um, and so you'll have like page one of the plans is chock full of eight point font and that I'll read it. I mean, it's my job to read it, but none of my subs will ever read that stuff. So I'll go through there and I'll start parsing out the important information and I'll reorganize it for cost code so that when my plumber opens up my bid package to him, all the important information for him is in one paragraph, you know, labeled plumbing. Um, whereas like metals, the division metals, it might, my ornamental iron guy might have to read there. My gutter guy might have to read there. My roof guy might have to read there. Um, and so I, I organize it by cost code instead of division. Which is really important. And so if I understand correctly, when you actually get the bid set to send off a bid, you're not just getting that electronic file with all the plans and emailing it out to all your trades, you're actually going through that, putting together essentially a scope document, a bid document to grab attention to each of the subs by division to say, hey, pay attention because this may be specified in the plans. Additionally, this may be specified in the design book. Make sure you don't mm -hmm. miss that. Yeah. Yeah. So anything is like kind of the, the understanding is like, hey, price this out like you would normally price out any other house in this town except look for like pay attention to this paragraph of details <laughs> you know we're yep. gonna tank this this tankless water heater on a circ loop uh we've got wall hung toilets in these three locations um i want to use pex a uh yeah and this many feet of yard lines going in the house so I, I try to every time i've lost money on like not communicating clearly with my subs and had that that hiccup of like oh why'd i get a bill for 300 extra dollars Oh, it's because you did this. I'm like, well, I always do that, but you didn't know that. So maybe I need to write it in my specifications next time. So from that aspect, you know, thinking about the budget, are you typically cost plus or lump sum or do you do both? Yeah. So we're all, I, I call it fixed price. So it's just like you're buying a car. If you're going to buy a car, it's $48,000. Here's everything that comes in it. That's, that's it. So how in the world are you doing that right now? You know, in this market? Yeah. I didn't say it was easy. I just said I was doing it. <laughs> No, luckily. I'm so have you, re have you thought about that and said, well, maybe I should rethink this, you know? So, yeah. It's, um, I, I have fared fairly well 
okay, decent. Uh, there's only one job I have that's kind of uh, really taken a wash on. I'm not, I'm not paying for it yet. I still have profit in there, but not nearly as much as what I used to. But it, in the contract I use, there is what's called an escalation clause. So, okay. and I've never had to use it. So this is my 15th year of business. Up until last year, I've never even had to think about using this escalation clause. And essentially says, initially it was set up at 25%. And I think it came about, we had a hurricane back in the early 2000s that took out a, an OSB plan. And then plus everyone was buying OSB. Um, and it shot up to like $60 a sheet. And so they put in this escalation clause to kind of pr protect against those weird outliers. Um, and then lo and behold, I guess the pandemic is one of those outliers. Um, so you mentioned 25% though. So the way that you're justifying that is let's, is it on materials and material so labor? Is it on material total cost? only and really lumber, lumber and steel have been the biggest two problems uh, going forward. Yeah. I've started to do lumber as an allowance item uh, to kind of get out of that risk. Offset that. Yeah. And then that's another reason to use vendor, the same vendors over and over and over again is, is they're going to stick to their pricing rather well. And I tell them, I was like, Hey, listen guys, like I'm a fixed price builder. Don't, like if you're a sheetrock guy and you know I'm starting the project tomorrow, you're not going to be hanging sheetrock in there for six months. Like, don't give me today's pricing. Like, I'm okay if you um, give me that, you know, 7% increase that you know is coming down the road in three months. Go ahead and give that to me now in your quote so that you don't have to change it whenever you, you stock the, the house with sheetrock. So that's interesting. So to bridge that, you know, you have escalation clause to protect you if you need it. You are over communicating from scope as well as with the subcontractors to say, Hey, be upfront that, Hey, if you're bidding drywall and I have eight months of site work, I mean, plan for 10, 12, right. 14 months out, whatever that may be. And then additionally, I mean, if it is something that does vary tremendously, then you are, even though you're fixed price, you're still doing allowance. Now being that you're fixed price, you have clients come back and say, Hey Luke, your fixed price. How can you guarantee the lumber allowance or do you even go down that path with them? Well, I tell, I, I open up the LBS stock market uh, ticker and I show them, this is what lumber's done in the last two years. Like your lumber's an allowance. We're pricing it out right here in the graph. Uh, it can continue to go down. It could spike again. Um, like instead of saying 80,000, like maybe say I, I did the takeoff and it's $80,000 worth of lumber. Like, do you want to leave that at 80 or do you want to tell the bank it's 100 to give yourself some cushion in there? For some so I'll, contingency. I'll through that. Yeah, I'll walk them through that conversation. That's interesting. So you'll walk them through that, you know, based on contingency, like they may have to have that contingency with the bank. Uh, do you ever have clients push back though saying, and, and, and the reason I bring that up, I do cost plus, like I used to be lump sum, but now we're cost plus and you know, every market's different. Every client's different. Uh, you know, our process and stuff. Uh, what I found is even at cost plus, like we try to be good stewards, as you mentioned early in this conversation that we try to contract everything forecast, lock in, purchase, store, you know, material if we have to, you know, on occasion there's things we can't cause they're too far out or there's nowhere to storm. I mean, there's some limitations with some, I mean, when you're doing a big house there just are, you know, and the common question is a client will say, well, what could he have done Brad to like forecast this, you know? And I'm like, well, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of things that we're trying. We're catching ABC, but you know, some of this stuff I can't, you know, I can't order your concrete. Where am I going to put it? You know, and so yeah. there's some things that are a little bit more open ended that are a little difficult. Yeah. You know, or masonry think, block or steel. I think I think guys that do cost plus 
have to go over the top explaining to their clients the risk they're taking on. Like, mm -hmm. you understand this is a cost plus contract. Like, if we have to spend 15 extra thousand dollars to go with the next subcontractor, because the one we wanted to go with is either no longer in business or too busy, like, that's on you. Um, you know, if lumber goes up, it's on you. Like, you're, you're taking on this risk for the, you know, potential of it being, you know, a low price. Uh, it, it is a risky business. <laughs> it is a risky business. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because no matter whether you're fixed price or lump sum, or I'm sorry, fixed price or cost plus, uh, and this comes down to just us as contractors is, you know, Luke, we're probably the same where there's a lot of mistakes that we could talk about for a couple hours on this podcast that I've made or, um, and, and, you know, having done that, it gives us more experience and confidence as we're having these conversations, where to push back with the client. Mm -hmm. And also additionally, where to set expectations. Hey, I, I failed to set this expectation, whether it was timeline or budget. But as you mentioned with cost plus, it's so important as builders that we're setting this expectation of all these variables. And, and a key one that you just mentioned that not enough builders do or understand is that, Hey, if we have an estimate here, your house is going to be, let's say a million dollars and the electrical line is 60,000. Well, if that electrician backs out, you know, or doesn't do it or and we someone, someone passes else. away or whatever, which happens, mm -hmm. right? We got to get someone else. It could be more. And, and clients have to understand they're taking that risk. But on the flip side, the benefit they're getting is they're getting your price. They're getting open book. They're getting, I don't want to say transparency. It's just a different operation where they're a lot more involved. There's a lot more paperwork behind that. Yeah. And so, but they have to understand who's, who's taking the risk yeah. because for you, look, as you mentioned, you have to, build in margin in a fixed price because you have to cover all these incidentals that may or may not yeah. happen. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to, to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. They're, their company culture, their integrity, their honesty. You know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. For those of you that have listened to the podcast, you know how big of a fan we are of Build-A-Trend and that we have used this software for the last four years. And many of the guests we've brought on the podcast are also Build-A-Trend users. And in this day and age, with as busy as all of us are in construction, as complicated as it is with escalation pricing, lead times, tracking, organization, all of us need a good project management software to help simplify and organize our business. And there are a couple features that we love a ton about Build-A-Trend. And one is the owner portal. The other is the daily logs. 
And these are features that we use daily, right? Half of my clients are out of state. And as an owner, it is so imperative how we communicate with our clients, with our team, with our customers. And through Build a Trend, this allows us that quick connection. They can check at any time. We can communicate with them. We're up to date. This has actually helped us win jobs, win projects because of that organization, especially at pre-construction. And Build a Trend also offers a ton of service on the back end, training and understanding and workshops, you know, to help us use our software effectively. They also have the podcast, The Building Code. To learn more, head to buildertrend.com backslash AFT to get a 60-day money-back guarantee on your Builder Trend account. That's 60 days to make sure you love this product with no pressure, and I know you will. And a couple of questions. Yeah. So cost plus, well, let's just say this, let's say risk, how many homes have you built? This is where I was going Um as a company yeah. or like in my career? I mean, sure. In, in your, well, let's just say as, as AFT, how many, how many homes? Yeah. AFT, I mean, I would say we're probably over 60, okay. right? 60 homes. How many, how many homes have your, have your clients built? Well, that's the thing. Yeah. You know, so this, and this is their really... first or second home to build. And are they the expert in construction? Like hopefully they would realize that this guy's built 60 homes. He's the expert. He understands that sometimes we've got to pay this guy 800 bucks to come back and fix that, this guy's work because he's never coming back and there's no way to get the money back out of him. Um, so anyway, that, that's one of the reasons I do fixed prices is, is I've built, you know, 60 plus homes and it's hard. It's hard to let someone else run my business, you know? Uh, and so yes. it's like when clients start holding money back, like, well, I don't think I should pay this draw because, I need this fixed and this done first. And like, oh, this is that's not how this industry works. Like it's hard to explain it. And it and it takes a lot of time and energy to explain that to every new client you have. Yeah, it really does. But but along those lines, even on a cost plus, I mean, keep in mind that we're not giving a hard proposal in a cost plus market. You know, when you're sending out the client, you're giving them essentially an estimate for the bank. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes the bank is gonna lock that in. And so the client is fiscally responsible for anything that goes over that, you know, cash yeah. out of pocket. And so to your point, even on a cost plus, everything is at cost, but I'll give a good example of like excavation. We do a lot of hillside work. So in our excavation line, we're putting in contingencies for the client, you know, whether hard dig, you know, that we could have so many hours of hard dig. We could have an allowance for like final grading, um, you know, touch up grades. And so it's itemized. We're putting that in there and essentially it's an allowance. So we're still accounting for these costs. And so there definitely is when you're doing cost plus, there has to be a lot more in depth, you know, uh, expectations, all these things you're mentioning. And so it's not for everybody, right? Both sides. Would you say like, it's pretty wise to put in 20% extra as a contingency and tell that client that money is spent. Like, don't expect for me to write you a big check at the end of this, that 20% is already spent. We just haven't, we don't know where it's going yet. Yeah. I I think it varies. Um, you know, and, and I'll give a couple examples, you know, if it's like painting, you know, if you're going to give a budget 50 grand, essentially you're going to be pretty close to that. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so you may have a couple thousand in there for like punch or like right. touch up, maybe some QC stuff. Same as drywall. We may say, Hey, your your here's your bids, you know, 50,000, but we're going to put 55,000 in there a little 10% because drywall there's typically, you know, maybe some, even though we are checking all our framing and we're straight edging in the house. You know, there could be some things. It's still lumber. It's still wood, right? Um, so, so there are some things there. Overall, as a contingency, we typically ask them to put like 3%. Ideally, they have a 3% of the cost. It's like a contingency line just for overages. Um, so some things may be less. 
some things may be pretty even, you know, so like you'll, countertops. you'll sprinkle some, some specific contingencies throughout the cost codes and then you'll have an overall 3% on everything. Correct. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And then we let them know this is an estimate. This is our best guess. And we're, we're pretty accurate. I mean, by the end of the job, we've done enough projects that, you know, we've been pretty close. We try to, you know, lumber, that one's tough. I mean, right now it, it depends on what time in the market. Right. So, you know, lumber, we're like, Hey, here's your allowance. And really there's like no allowance that can justify this. Cause it could go way down and it could go like five times the price. So yeah. Yeah. That part's hard. So how do you, how do you do your cash flow? I think that's our next topic of conversation. Yeah. Good question. So cash flow, as in, uh, just be doing cost plus cause you're always yeah. in arrears or, or yeah. How, how do you guys handle that? Yeah. So for me is to be transparent here. I mean, we're building deposits. So we have a couple of things. We have PSA. So we have our professional service agreement. So we're billing our time and pre-con, um, which on my projects typically last anywhere from eight months to two years, you know, before we break ground. And, and it varies the size of projects, complexity, the HOAs, you know, there's a lot of approvals for different HOAs and then the city. And then in Phoenix, it's a little unique because we do have flood zones. So we're dealing on a national level with like FEMA. Right. And so that can take a longer time to get through the civil side. And so that consulting over the eight to 16 months, we do have, it's typically a set fee with every customer, depending on the project for that PSA. So that helps cover some of our pre-con numbers. And then for billing, when we break ground on a project, we charge a deposit. So it's a significant deposit to start construction. And that helps us, you know, I'm not a bank, right? I can't, yeah, no joke. <laughs> you got to feed the meter. That's right. If you want us to build your home, yeah. feed the meter. It's not my house. Like I, I have to like financially cash flows King. And so we have to have being that most banks will, will have limited number of draws per client or they have, uh, you know, you can, some banks are like, Hey, even if you have unlimited draws, you can only do one every 30 days. Well, that's going to put me in a tough bind to keep prompt pay going, right. And keep guys moving. So we set it up where we have deposits that keeps the meter running, gives us cash flow. where if I have to float a deposit, I can then bill for it and capture it on the next pay application. And so fortunately, you know, knock on wood, we've been very vigilant about deposits. And one thing to answer your question, Luke, that's, and, and maybe we'll get into this as we talk about internal systems. But one thing that's unique with where we are as a company now, I have 17 employees. So at the end of the month, when we're doing our pay application draws, I send out my controller, one of my accountants, and I'll send out uh, my director of ops with my superintendent coordinator. So everyone that's assigned to that job is going through the schedule. They're forecasting what's coming over the next 30 days and 90 days. Here's the deposits that are coming up, you know, windows, appliances, tile, whatever it may be. Here's the lead time on some of these things. So as a team, ideally, hopefully, these four or five people that are on site every month are physically on the project. They know where it stands. They know what's upcoming and we can forecast those deposits because it's all about making sure you're billing in adequate time and having the backup. But again, going back to the risk, if I'm giving deposit to X contract, I better make sure they have the material. They're not robbing Peter PayPal because if they go under or go bankrupt, which happened in 2009 and 10, and you're handing them a deposit, they close the next day. That puts me in a tough position. Yep. So there's a lot of cross-checking with the client and the subcontractor to make sure we're partnering with the right people. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Uh, so with fixed price, um, I do milestone draws. And so we'll, we'll try to get 10% uh, as the initial contract execution draw. Um, and then whenever we, there's probably about nine or 10 milestones throughout the project. So slab pour, frame dried in, mechanicals done, insulation done, drywall, 
it's not you're not paying just for the drywall but you're paying for everything up into that point it's just having the drywall finish means that you can start putting in your trim so they're kind of triggers throughout the process and then throughout the years i've i've established percentages to put on each one of those draws to make sure that i always have money in escrow and i'm not being the bank so do you find it challenging uh milestones which i understand most fixed people and and Rima, and, and i'll give a good example so like um I know a remodel company and what they do is I sat down with them and he said, Brad, if it's a 12 week job, you know, I divide the total value. So let's just say easy math. It's 120 grand over 12 weeks and he'll divide it over 12. And he just says, I'd build 10 grand every week. They need to pay every Friday, 10 grand. It's just divided by that number. And if they don't pay me, you know, then I pull off the job and right. it's on pause. And, and in his defense, he says, but at the same time, like I promise them that there won't be 48 hours without someone on the job. Right. And I'm still matching my schedule. And so he has just a clean way. It's in his contract. That's how he bills it. It's a little bit longer process for you, a little bit more complicated. Do you find an issue with cash flow if it's just milestone driven where it's like, hey, at you know, at initial signing, at concrete, at framing, you know, at four-way, whatever it may be, as opposed to maybe like a work in progress, even though it's still fixed price. Yeah. No, I've 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 figured out those percentages to cover it. Um but if we're doing some project that's got a window budget where we're using uh, some fancy European windows that are 2x normal windows, you know, I'll, I'll take a couple percentage points from the middle of the project and throw it towards probably the slab draw um, so that we have that money there to pay deposits and get those going. Now, do you ever have clients have issues? Because at some point, whether you're cost plus, taking a big deposit at the beginning and as you're billing throughout the process, you get to the end, right? And same as fixed price with milestones at some point taking a 10% deposit, there's going to be, you know, this, uh, stare down, if you will, where the client's like, Hey, I need to have skin in the game from you to get the punches done. We, as a builder, are like, Hey, we need to be paid in full for warranty to kick in you know, right. an honorable contract. <laughs> we're going to get this done. So it's this really fine line where we're being held hostage for final payment. The client wants to have leverage. Yeah. We're trying to get the project down. We're trying to get people to come back, but we still need to be paid. Right. So what we do when clients have that issue, uh, the last draw is typically the CO draw, which uh, just signals substantial completion. You know, we get the paperwork from the city that says this is a health or a safe functioning house. Um, so sometimes we'll get full payment then. And clients that maybe have been burned in the past and are a little nervous about that. We'll, we'll sit down and say, hey, what would make you comfortable? Like, we're going to finish this punch list. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be in business 15 years and screw people over every time. So hopefully, you know, you can trust me. But I understand there's, yeah, you want to make sure that you're holding the, the power with that. So do we hold 5,000? Do we hold 10,000 of, you know, of that final payment until all punch list items are done? You know, I'm fine with that. And that usually appeases the, the concern. I love that you brought that up. And the reason being is this is something going back to setting expectation of clients is that from the very beginning, and this comes from the commercial background I've worked in, is that whenever you get to the end of a project, say on a hotel or like a big development project, there, there's always a working punches, right? Maybe you're mm -hmm. missing some landscaping, uh, missing a monument sign. I mean, whatever it is. And so what ends up happening is with like architect, developer, builder, you sit down, and you assign a value to the punch list. So let's say you have 20 punch list items, the monument sign's missing, okay. The actual cost of the monument sign is $15,000. So we're gonna assign a punch list value of 25 grand. So, so whatever it is, that number's assigned per the punch list of value. 
So in that way, as that item gets checked off, you get funded that right away once they sign off. And it still gives enough skin in the game where let's just say I disappear that you know the client still can pay that off. Because what we don't want to happen is a client owes you, Luke, $200,000 on the last draw. And you have like some painting touch-ups, right. maybe a piece of baseboard missing, you know, a cabinet door or something, maybe an appliance that you're waiting for. So you probably have like 20 grand of things no, and they're holding back 200 grand. And you know, yeah. So I've had, it's funny, I'll, whenever it gets down to that final list or that final item, um, I don't, let's just say it's a, I don't, let's just say it's a cap, a cap on a pipe on the outside of the house that the plumber just cannot <laughs> get around to putting on, right? Um Eventually, he's the last one, and I'll call him up and be, "Hey, that's that's a ten thousand dollar cap that I need you to install for me." And like, "Oh, really? I, I didn't know you were waiting on me." I'm like, "Yeah, I've been <laughs> I've been emailing you for three weeks to go put that cap on, and now it's holding back final payment. So get over there." So you actually tell the trades that that that's how much that's yeah, costing yeah. you. <laughs> but but essentially, the game plan here is what you and I are on the same page is that now you know at this point in our career, ideally we've set the expectation at the beginning of the project and at the end. That, hey, there'll be a punch list. I mean, we're doing our team walk like tomorrow. I'm taking my team. We're doing our AFT team walk. It's all 17 people punching the house. I mean, oh, ideally, I, they move I without totally stole that from you, by the way. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. After I think you posted about it one time, I'm like, that's so awesome. So we're, we're doing team <laughs> power punches now. Yeah, we call them power punch. I love it. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I know Tom at Last Creek uses them and he's like been tagging me. And so uh, a lot of builders have. And, it, and it's awesome. Like tomorrow, we just had a new hire. We brought on a new super this week. And so. It's great too, because now you're in the field. He gets to meet everybody. And I bring all 17 of my employees. We go punch the house for yep. three, four hours. And there's six weeks left till this house is complete. And now hopefully we have, you know, my superintendent's the scribe and he's, mm-hmm. we're, he gets audited. All 17 <laughs> of us are like just picking them apart. Right. Like, and it's actually Paul. So, you know, Paul, <laughs> we're going to Paul's house. And so fortunately we have the camaraderie as a company where everyone knows, Hey, this isn't like anything personal because no, you get snow blind. You yeah. look at things. You, you got yeah, 17 just, new eyeballs in there and they're going to see something that, you know, Paul's, you know, for those listening, you don't see what I'm doing with my face, but you know, you're two inches away from the project with your nose the whole time. And you don't see that massive hole in the sheetrock in the closet. You know, you've walked by it 20 times, but getting some fresh eyes in there, it's really powerful to get that list complete so that when you do present it to the client, you're not going to have those embarrassing moments where you see that when you're walking. The yeah. House. And how valuable for like Paul where, yeah, I mean, there's a little audit, if you will, where it's kind of like, oh, I should have had that done or noticed that, you know, but which happens and, and we're human and we want to take pride in our work. But at the same time, you're like, I have 17 people give me a running punch list that now I can get this out to the trades. I can knock this out in the next six weeks. And ideally I'm turning over a house where now the client's not going to pick me apart because it's done. Yeah. And if there are some items left over, then yeah, we attribute a value to them. And as those are done, we get finance. And it, fortunately, we've had some good clients. And, and I'm glad you brought this example up, Luke, because we just went through one. And um, same thing. It, it was a big amount. They're holding back. And I sat down with the client. I said, look, you guys know we're good for it. You know, I have six young kids. Like, I'm not going anywhere. We're here. We're here for long term. But irregardless, like, you need some confidence. Let's assign a value to these items. And here they are. And they were super fine with that. We held back, you know, $50,000 is what we agreed to. They, they funded the rest immediately. And then as we chipped those off, which only took us about seven days, you know, they, mm-hmm. they funded in full. So it just, you know, it's a good strategy, you know, residential commercial to get through that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So system wise, Luke, what are you doing? Uh, cause I know you're a super systems guy. We talked about your accounting. We talked about your communication with the clients and how you do your draw schedule. Are there other software systems, you know, training, you know, how big is your company? How are you, you, you know, organizing just 
the entire company yeah. at this point. Yeah. So you're a basketball guy, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So if I if I were to to fly in and you pick me up at the airport and we go to some park with a basketball court and we find three other guys, well, eight other guys, we have two teams. Um, we could all play basketball, right? Like I don't even know yep. those guys' names. I've never met them before. We could we could play a game of basketball. Everybody knows the rules, um, and so it's yeah, it, it's super simple. And even if one of those guys gets injured, like someone else could step in, and we could keep playing keep playing the game. So I kind of attribute my processes to that to that example. Like so, if and this all got born out of necessity for for five years, I was just a single owner operator wearing every single hat in, in the in the company. And whenever I made my first hire, I was like, I've got to, I've got to get some processes down because if I'm going to go have a two hour meeting with a client and my, my construction manager is not there, um, I don't want to have to have a two hour meeting with my construction manager. Right. And then waste a whole nother day. And then I might miss something. Um, and so I guess I thinking about systems, you know, how can I make red lines on the plans that we don't have to talk about it. He can just, pull up plans and see them or get notified do whatever software we're using. Um, if we make spec change, he's going to open up the specs and he's going to see red line spec changes. Um, and also now, like, so now that we're up and running, I've got four project managers. I've got an office administrator. If one of my project managers needs to take a week and a half vacation, he just says, Hey, Hey, John, you want to cover my projects on gone? John says, sure. That's all they have to say. <laughs> And so, so let me ask you, do you know when they're taking vacation or do they ask each other? No, I know. I know. I keep a master schedule and, uh, I, I can't have everybody out at the same time. So, yeah, but essentially I guess what I'm getting at is that they may be asking you for the time off, but they're not saying, Hey Luke, I'm gone. And you're having to pick up the pieces to figure Correct. out who to sign. No, no, no. I was like, Hey, you get with another project manager. Um, and so Monday morning, that project manager rolls up on his job site and he's going to open up the schedule and he's going to see that these three items have been scheduled already. They're supposed to be happening later this week. It looks like today I, I, I need to schedule this thing. Um, and then he's going to go into the specifications. He's going to read the specifications for whatever it is he's scheduling. And he's going to go into the, the bid quote, open up the bid for that contractor, make sure everything still matches any red lines from change orders are copied over. And then he's going to sign off on that quote and he's going to email it to that vendor and, and get them on schedule. And then um, you know, if he's walking the house and he's like, gosh, how is this, is this a floating sink or is it a wall mount faucet? He can open up the specifications in that job folder and get to the information he needs and make sure that things are getting done right. So that's interesting. So from the software side though, how are you managing, you know, punch list, ongoing punch list, communication schedules? How are you managing that? Yeah. So for, for plan management, which I used to not think was a big deal instead of, until I started getting into some more complex projects, uh, plan management and punch lists, I use a, a software called Plan Grid. Um, and it's, it's really powerful. You know, let's say you have a 50 page set of plans from an architect and then um, they come and they do a big site meeting with the client. They decide to make a couple changes and then they issue a whole new set of plans you know, 50 pages of new plans, uh, plan grid, you can upload the new file, uh, make sure all the pages are named accurately. And because it knows it has a newer date, it will overlay that plan on the old plans. And then you can actually do a sheet compare to where it will highlight all the areas that are different. Um, and then all your notes, this is a, this is the primary driver of why we got it. 
all of our 50 red lines and annotations on the old set of plans now bleed up to the new set. And so we don't have to spend time copying, pasting our notes over. Uh, and that was huge for us. Um, and then before, I love that. And we're using Bluebeam for that. Yeah. I think, Do you I guys think, use Bluebeam? Very, I think it's very similar. Um, yeah. So very similar. Yeah. And then uh, we were using another individual app for punch lists, but Plain Grid has a really robust uh, punch list feature as well. So yeah, you can, you can tag 20 framing items. You can assign them to the framer. You can add pictures with red lines um, and then you can filter out, you know, let me see just the framers list and then you can email him a link and he gets a, a customized, you know, report that has all his punch lists on it. It's amazing. I mean, th th there's a light that clicks on, right? When you get to the point, Luke, where you, you have the systems in line, and it's not that your job's less complicated and you don't have issues like all of us do every day, but you get to that point where your team is finding a replacement when they're out of town. You know, I, I feel like as a business owner that that's when, not that you've arrived, but yeah. that's when you're like, okay, like we're, 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 we're on the right track that you're not having a substitute. You got people in place that are like already looking ahead at that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and with the power punch we do, um, we've got, instead of just having one scribe, there's three other PMs in there with their, with their plan grid app open. And so they're adding punch items directly to it. They know what subs responsible so they can tag them. They're taking pictures, they're redlining. So everyone's just kind of hitting refresh, you know, every five minutes to make sure no one's doubling up on a punch item. And so, yeah, they, there might be half the punch items on that list that the PM didn't enter but he knows he doesn't have to because once he filters it out, he knows everyone entered them incorrectly. Um, he just has to manage the, the, uh, the fixing of them. So how, how many employees do you have? How big is the company? So I've got four project managers and then a, a business administrator, uh, here that is, is my right hand lady. And so six of you. Yeah. Total, total of six of us. So, uh, if, if you don't mind me asking, you know, project manager, reason for the titles it just based on all the scope of work that they perform each of them yeah so they uh it used to be construction manager and i, I know it's semantics there's people every company for calls sure. it something different um yeah and it's and it's territorial and it's like but but still right so project manager because they're once we start construction i step completely in the background they're running meetings with the architect and owner every week they're the primary point of contact for everything they're they're running the show. I'm just I'm just behind the scenes making sure they have what they need, and so that's why I call them the project manager instead of just a construction manager. Yeah, which is very similar to my operation. Um, and it's it, you know it's not like you check out. It's just you know you there's empowerment, right? And so with empowerment, you know you're you're training them. When did you get to the point to make your first hire? Was that challenge? I mean, how have you dealt with the hiring process? Which a lot of people have struggled with to find good talent and good managers, right? To, to just apply their system. Yeah. That's, that's the hardest part of this business is, is hiring people. Um, hopefully like, thankfully I don't have to do a lot, but when I do have to do it, I, I hate it. It's, it's so challenging. <laughs> um, but so where did you find your four project managers? Yeah. Um, I guess back to the Genesis. We're not going to go steal them. I know, right? Kidding. Yeah. Here's their, here's their phone numbers and their email addresses. Do they want to move to Scottsdale? <laughs> yeah. <they Do> they? <laughs> is there good hunting there? That's, that's probably yeah. the primary driver. They'd have to drive a little bit, yeah. but there is good hunting up in Northern Arizona. Yeah. Um, whenever, whenever I was first starting my company in the first five years, I'd get real busy and I'm like, okay, maybe it's time to hire that first guy. And then the roller coaster would happen. Right. And then it would get real slow. And then, oh, so glad I didn't hire someone. Cause then I'd probably have to let them go. 
And then I'd get ramped back up, like, oh, maybe now's the time. And then it would go back down. And so I was real hesitant to pull the trigger because I'd never, I don't know, I, I never want to get in a situation where I have to let someone go. Like firing someone's one issue, but um, having to let them go because business is slow, like that's just would make me feel like a complete failure. Um, but finally, I got to a point to where I had like three jobs uh, closing and doing through the punch list. And I saw that on the horizon. And I'm like, there's there's no way I can do this by myself. Like, I don't even if I worked 18 hour days, it, I just there was no way I could get it done by myself. So it was kind of like necessity pushed me over the cliff. And uh, my first hire is still with me. So uh, he's he's nine and a half years with me now. Um, wow. And uh yeah, I lucked out on that one. In, in fact, I already knew him. Uh, and so when I was looking for someone to hire, um, another one of my builder buddies mentioned him. And, you know, what do you think about him? And I'm like, well, I didn't, I didn't think you'd even be interested. Uh, and my, my buddy, I think he might have already talked to him, but he's like, you should go. You should go talk to him, see, see what he would think. And so I did. And uh, yeah, that was nine and a half years ago. Um, the, the, the main thing for him at the time, he wanted a lot of time off. Uh, he had, he had four, four girls and they were all grown up still in the household and he wanted to be able to spend a lot of time with them and take, you know, multiple weeks off in the summer times with them to go, uh, camp and, 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 and be an awesome father that he is. And so, yeah, we were able to work out an arrangement where he got lots of time off and, and that worked great. Um, has that been a challenge with other employees or? Uh, I mean, his pay scale reflects that. I mean, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to a point, to a point, but no, he, uh, that, that's part of the gig. And even now he's, he's even taking more time off, but he's, uh, he's a really good manager. It's almost like his projects don't suffer, uh, cause, cause he's really good. Uh, and I know all my guys are going to be listening to this podcast, so they're all doing an amazing <laughs> job. Uh, and you all know who I'm talking about right now. Um, yeah, you better not miss that. Right, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, business started picking up a little bit of steam. Um, and then I hired my second one. And I think it's when I hired my second one that I changed it from a construction manager to a project manager. And I was like, I don't have time to meet with all these clients all the time on site. And so it kind of transitioned more to me being in the office and then being you know, meeting with clients. And so we had to do some more system changes and updates and adders and make new systems to accommodate that. Um, and then, yeah, now we're up to four. Uh, I think when I jumped to three project managers is when I also hired the office administrator. Um, and that was a, and that's also when I got official office space, I was home officing at the time. And I'm like, if I'm going to make this jump, I need, I need, I need to get out of this home office. We were, uh, doing a homeschool hybrid where, uh, you know, we had all of our kids were at home half the week. And so that was getting crazy and loud and I couldn't just hide myself in a room anymore. Uh, and you got four kids, like, yeah. and what are their ages? Yeah. So right now they're, they're 14, 12, 10 and eight. Yeah. All so that's crazy. And they were all at home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so got official office space, uh, hired my, my third PM, hired the office administrator. Um, and so, yeah, now we're up to, like I said, four PMs, one office administrator and myself. I'm just amazed at your efficiency. And the reason I say that is because, I mean, you accomplished quite a deal with just six of you. And I, I know from running custom homes, like it's extremely um, complicated, tricky. I mean, there's just a lot of things to manage, right? Especially with purchasing and ordering and deposits and submittals and RFIs and, you know, all these things that we go through, even if like in my case where I ideally have everything selected, plans, specs, design books, everything's done for we start 
doesn't matter if things are discontinued. We still have to get submittals. We have to get HOA approvals. And so, you know, I have coordinators that chase a lot of that down. So I'd imagine your project managers are chasing out samples, submittals, and, you know, purchasing and working with you on uh, deposits and everything that goes along with that. Yeah, we try to we try to get everything done up front. So they're not like all the quotes are done. Um, whenever it comes down to design selections, we'll send them to my rep at like, say, Ferguson's for their appliances. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I try to take all that off the PM's plate so he doesn't have to deal with it. So his his primary goal is running the schedule, making sure it gets built accurately and meeting with the clients. Like that's that's yeah. mainly their, their, their job. Yeah, and I agree. I, I would say we're on the same page there. I mean, and more what I was speaking to is like, at, at least for our HOAs, we have to build mock-ups, right? So we have to have roof mm-hmm. tile samples and we have to do synthetic stucco color samples, swatches. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we have to have a little baby window installed, right? To show the setback. And so, I mean, it's just all these little things you have to chase down that can be pretty cumbersome. Yeah. But, um, do you, uh, so sometimes we'll have interior designers that are on, that getting paid directly by the owner. And sometimes they'll, they'll help out with stuff like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and same here, you know, I ideally outsource all that. And so, and this one will bring you on Luke. I mean, it's, it's amazing just listening to you. Cause I've, I, you know, I've known you, as you mentioned early in the conversation, we met at KBiz and we've been friends who Instagram mostly and, you know, running, you know, have both have the same, um, desire to grow the industry. I know you do, you know, I enjoy following you in your accounts and seeing everything you post and just, I, I already knew this about you and mostly because I talked to Matt and he tells <laughs> me about you, but, uh, which is a huge compliment. I mean, anyone knows Matt and he speaks so highly of you, but I, you know, for those listening, I, I think it's really powerful and empowering that you know, to see someone such as yourself that came in production, you know, has built this amazing business so efficient and not just from an efficiency accounting that you've built your own software, but also just, um, your desire to grow the industry and, and build beautiful homes that are efficient, that are healthy, that, you know, are sustainable. And, and so kudos to you, Luke. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, thinking about, so I, I try to have my, my PMs handle two projects at a time. That's that's ideal. It doesn't always work out like that way. Sometimes really big projects, um, it's just one PM, one job. Um, mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to weed out. And this also kind of ties into the cost plus fixed price deal. Like if a project gets really complicated, it probably has to be cost plus because there's we don't have the details to the point of where I can bid it out. Like I can't do it. And so... Um, that might so I only look for projects of a certain size, certain detail, where I think my PMs can handle two at a time. Um, and so when you start getting into these, like, I mean, we were always building a prototype, but when you're really building a prototype, you know, those jobs have to be cost plus, and it's kind of like you have to have one PM, one project, and then the the pay scale. I mean, you got to make sure that the cash flow. You know, if he's only got one job, he better be bringing in the same cash flow as his other PMs mm-hmm. that have two jobs. And so, kind of as a business high level looking at it, you're looking at cash flow per month of you know, should I take on three jobs of this size or two jobs of this size? How does you know the efficiency of what each PM can take on? Um, yeah, all kinds of different lenses you can look at it through. It's interesting because we didn't get into the ideal client or marketing, but you know, early in this conversation, when we're talking about homes and experience of our clients, the reality is, you know, having clients that have built two or three homes, right? It's going to, for me, in my market, it's going to be a much better process. They've been through it, you know, so it's less expectations off the set to really cover everything, Mm -hmm. right? Because they've been through it. And so there's enough I can cover to understand how we do things. To your point too, 
it's not just ideal client making sure there's a marriage between that client and us as we vet them, but it's also understanding our lane, right? Our marketing strategy, what projects we want to bring in. Cause it may be easy, Luke, for you to say, okay, someone's building this 50,000 square foot, you know, Elon Musk calls you and says, build my house, you know, but you may say, Hey, this isn't really like our specialty. Cause like, this is our formula and here's what we want to yeah. do. I'm not saying you would say no, no I- to that, but but there may be a strategy to say these are the projects we're taking on because I know that we can be successful. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a had a project come across my desk a couple months ago from an architect that we've done lots of jobs with. And it was one of those over the top. I mean, curved glass doors, basements, which we don't do basements here in, in, in central Austin. Uh, I mean, just over the top, like crazy cladding systems it was going to be absolutely gorgeous. And it's one of those, I'm like, if I was like semi-retired and it was just me again, like <laughs> I would love to take this on because I would it would build me up so much. I'd love to do it. What a great challenge. I'd be perfect for it, right? But it wasn't good for my company. Like, like even though I would love to do it, and I knew that I could probably personally do it. And if it was my only job, it would be awesome. But there's no way that we would be successful in our company to do it. So I had to pass on it. And I was it was I was a little humbled by it because like, you know, I had to tell the architect all this. And uh, it's like, I'd love to, but I just, I don't think as a company, we can take this one on. Yeah. Well, that kudos to you. Cause that is a hard conversation when you see something that may be like a trophy worthy on Instagram yeah. that you could publish social media, it's hard to turn that down. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you do for fun? Uh, we love the outdoors. So my wife and I, we met rock climbing, uh, and then, and then we're somehow shocked when our kids love to climb trees and scare our neighbors. Half <laughs> um, but no, we used to mountain bike all the time. Um, even now, like we love to go out outdoors, uh, really into sports. All my, my, my wife was really into sports in high school and, uh, and our kids are starting to get into sports. And so we're, we're always busy going to gyms and fields and, and, uh, and swim team, uh, swim team, uh, shout out to the Balcones Woods Blue Wave. We just won our championship uh, meet last week. Wow, weekend, congrats. So that was fun. Um, that's, that's really big in our neighborhood. But yeah, love the outdoors. Uh, we loved RV. So we, we bought a travel trailer uh, two and a half years ago. And uh, we probably like Matt and I took that big epic trip together yep. last summer. Where we went yeah, it's been to, like on a three-week trip or yeah, something. Yeah, like up to Glacier National Park. And it was, yeah. it was awesome. It was a lot of hard work. Um, no one got injured and we came back with all of our equipment. <laughs> that's um, good but that was a lot of fun in fact next week we're leaving on a two-week trip uh i'm heading back up to colorado and, and on to north dakota and the risingers are going off to the east coast and then up florida beach so we're not together this summer we're kind of bummed about it but um maybe maybe next year well good for you guys that's amazing so luke for those that uh have been listening where can they find you uh so instagram is probably my primary one so at mesger homes uh, it, it auto feeds to the Facebook page of the same name, but I'm most active on Instagram. Well, Luke, you've been amazing. Uh, again, kudos to you and your business and what you've built and achieved and, and continue to achieve. So thank you for making time. Yeah. I appreciate the time, Brad. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.